Good morning, church. <laughs> How many of you have ever watched Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? As in the previous and subsequent movies in the franchise, Indiana Jones, a college professor, gallivants the world fighting Nazis, Soviets, and human-sacrificing tribes searching for priceless historical artifacts, preventing the bad guys from getting them, and thus saving the world. He'd already recovered the Ark of the Covenant and a lingam stone, and he would later recover the crystal skull and the spear of Longinus. What would he rescue now? What was the object of his quest? It was nothing less than the Holy Grail, the cup that Jesus drank out of at the Last Supper, According to legend, speak, drinking from it granted the drinker eternal life. Who wouldn't want that? Well, the Nazis again. They had already tried to find the Ark of the Covenant, so why not this? And they found it, in the movie anyway, at the cost of a monumental body count. Throughout history, men and kings have searched for eternal life setting out on perilous journeys far from home. In the 1500s, Spanish conquistadors searched out great riches for the Spanish Empire. One such conquistador, Ponce de Leon, was charged with locating the Fountain of Youth, the mystical fountain whose waters would restore youth and vigor to the drinker. In almost a religious fervor, he set sail for the New World, finding what he claimed to be the fountain in St. Augustine, Florida. Guess what? He died, and so did a lot of others who stood in his way. Throughout history and across cultures, men have sought immortality. From the Jade Emperor of China holding great peach feasts, feasting on the peaches of immortality to please their gods, to the alchemists of the Middle Ages in their quest for the Philosopher's Stone, so they could use it to create, among other things, the elixir of life. To more modern attempts, such as baseball great Ted Williams, who've sought immortality through cryonics, and those who have sought diet, exercise, and other rejuvenative medicine to stave off aging and death. And they have all died. Considering the history, distant and recent, of quests for immortality, we should come to the conclusion that such a quest is a fool's errand. And we would be right. The universal commonality that everyone who has sought immortality has is that they are all dead. Kaput. Deceased. Dead as a doornail. Six feet under. Bought the farm. Kicked the bucket taking a long dirt nap, pushing up daisies. I think you get the picture. So why do people seek eternal life? Why did men journey far from home, facing incredible odds and extreme dangers, something that humanity has universally failed at achieving? Men have fought for it. Men have killed for it. And ironically, men have died for it. Simply put, fear. Fear of judgment. Fear of the unnatural. So the writer of Hebrews says, Justice is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. 
Death is unnatural. The antithesis of creation. There's something inherently unsettling about the idea of death. The deep sense that death is a bad thing. Something alien to man. In part, when we grieve at funerals, we grieve because death is foreign to God's design. Like an invader to be repulsed. A cruel interloper. And we'd be right. Death was never the way it was meant to be. So why do we persist? Why do we continue to attempt the impossible? Even Jesus himself calls it impossible in today's text when he says, with man, it is impossible. Because there is something written deeply on our hearts that says, there has to be a way. And we'd be right. In last week's text, we learned something about the manner in which we approach and receive the kingdom of God. Not like the affluent or those with means, but like a child. With simplicity and obedience, empty-handed and wholly dependent on God. We saw Jesus rebuke the disciples who tried to act like gatekeepers deciding who could and could not come to Jesus. We see Jesus blessing the children and claiming them for his own. In 1519, when the conquistadors were conquering the New World, one such conquistador landed on the coast of what is today Mexico. Hernan Cortez landed with a fleet and 600 men. When the men had landed in this strange new land to eliminate the possibility of going back in the face of potential hardships, Cortez gave the now famous order burn the ships. You cannot go back if there is nothing to go back to. Now, the ships weren't burned, they were scuttled, a fine point in history to be sure, but the truth is still the same. You can't return to what you have rid yourself of. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, we have repeatedly seen the kingdom of God show up as a theme. Starting in 115, when Jesus declares the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, In fact, to this point in Mark, we have seen the phrase kingdom of God appear eight times. On the other hand, we've seen the the phrase eternal life appear precisely none. Then we come to today's text, which is overflowing with explicit references to eternal life. But something else occurs in today's text as well. Not just does Jesus refer to eternal life, but the text equates eternal life, the kingdom of God, and being saved. And they are used interchangeably in this text. The kingdom of God is not just a place of God's just and benevolent rule, but a place of salvation. Salvation from what? The eternal damnation alluded to in Mark 3, 29. But we learn that it is also eternal. His kingdom will never end and death will have no part in it. This is truly Good news. The only thing necessary to attain the kingdom of God is to wholeheartedly and irreversibly seek the impossible. Let's turn now to today's text. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, 
Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. As with any great quest, we must first prepare by asking, what do I need? The man in today's text asks just that. For context, this episode occurs after Jesus and his disciples set out on the road toward Jerusalem, after they leave the house they had entered in 1010. As Jesus and the disciples set out, a man approaches Jesus. Mark only calls him a man. Matthew's account calls him young, and Luke's account calls him a ruler. Hence the traditional title of this section, The Rich Young Ruler. This likely means that he was a ruler in the synagogue. If the man was a ruler in the synagogue, then he was likely well-learned in the rabbinic teachings on eternal life. The emphasis on this, of this verse, however, is not on the questioner. Rather, on the question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is the only section in Mark where the word meaning to inherit is used. In fact, it's used in 18 occasions in the New Testament as a whole, and without exception, it's used in reference to inheriting the kingdom, salvation, or eternal life. 
Thematically, it's significant because this comes on the heels of Jesus blessing the children and claiming them as his heirs. Heirs inherit. We're about to see the practical implementation of the object lesson in the pronouncement from last week's text in verses 13 through 16. We should note the manner in which the man approached Jesus. He ran up to Jesus and dropped to his knees. The same picture is used with the leper who approached Jesus in Mark 1.40. There's a certain desperation at work here. He was asking Jesus the question as he was kneeling, as if the question was so disturbing him that he could not wait to get it out. Given that the man was kneeling as one does with a teacher and he was urgently asking Jesus, we can surmise that this was a genuine inquiry from someone who was disturbed in his soul. He called Jesus good and his desire was for eternal life. He brushed aside the expected Orthodox Jewish idea that the way to eternal life was by keeping the commandments and he came to Jesus for the answer. His question implies that he understood that he didn't have eternal life and he wanted it. By asking Jesus, this implies that he had some understanding that Jesus could give it to him or at least point him in the right direction. The rich man wanted to know what he had to do to earn eternal life. But as we remember from last week, Jesus had just finished teaching that the kingdom is not earned. Rather, it's received. His approach was in earnest and the object of his quest was right. Moreover, whether he realized it or not, he had approached exactly the right person to answer his question. Also, with any great quest, we should approach a guide, an authority on the path ahead. The man had asked Jesus a serious, earnest, and honest question. Jesus' response here, though, should be understood as somewhat unexpected. The man had asked a question of Jesus about how to earn eternal life, and Jesus seemingly gets stuck on the terms of address, as if to, as if to correct the young man. It might be tempting to look at this and read it and say, now Jesus, you're being a little petty here. The man asked a serious question and you're getting stuck on how he addressed you. But is that really what's going on here? In no uncertain terms, no. Jesus is not bothered that the man called him good. In fact, Jesus himself refers to himself as good. In John 10, we see Jesus make the claim about himself, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Jesus was not against being called good. He referred to himself with that adjective. What we have here is Jesus cutting right to the chase, the core premise of the man's question. Since no one is good except God alone, it is not proper to call Jesus good unless the young man is prepared to acknowledge Jesus as God. It's a conditional statement here that, that doesn't come through well. If God alone is good, and let's assume that, then why do you call me good? Essentially, do you know what you're saying when you address me this way? Are you ready to assume responsibility for all that entails? Do you understand the implication of calling me good? Additionally, if God alone is good, and while the Jews would certainly have called God good, 
they would not have called only God good, then it is entirely inadequate to externally keep the law, even God's law. This sets up the next statement that Jesus makes. Jesus is about to remind the man of the requirements of the law, but if the man accepts the implication of Jesus' statement that since God alone is good, then keeping the law externally is insufficient, and he should know that Jesus is about to expose his insufficiency. So we've prepared, we've sought an authority, and now with any great quest, we need a map. Jesus reminds the young man of the law, do, if that's to be the way, then you must do all the law commands. If the man wants to do something to inherit eternal life, then do is everything. All 637 commands of the law, perfectly at all times, to the letter. But Jesus starts him off easy. Jesus only recites the commandments of the second tablet, those focused on behavior toward and relationships with others. Jesus initially agrees with the young man's framework that there is something he could do. He starts off with the relational commands. Do not murder. Don't take another life. God gives and takes life. Don't usurp that role with others. Do not commit adultery. Marriage is sacred. Do not violate the marriage bed. Do not steal. You have your property and a lot of it. Don't, do not take what, what does not belong to you. Do not bear false witness. Be honest. Tell the truth. As the writer of Proverbs said, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. Do not defraud. Do not covet money so much that you withhold from others what is rightfully theirs. The wealthy do not covet since they have means, but sometimes they gain those means through dishonesty. Honor your mother and father. As Paul tells us the first command with a promise, that it may go well with you in the land. You must do these things. You must relate well with others. If you don't, that's the ball game. Because... As John says in 1 John 4.20, he who does not love his brother who he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Keep these commandments and you will do well. The young man confirms that, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Interestingly here, the rich man did not address Jesus as good teacher, only as teacher. Is this a statement that he did not believe that Jesus was God? Maybe. Maybe he's a ruler of the synagogue. He doesn't want to appear to blaspheme. But maybe he's not ready to accept the implication. He is a good Jew, though. He's kept the law. He's quite confident in his own self-righteousness. He's kept the law of Moses. There's an emphasis in the text on from my youth, implying the present adulthood, having a starting point, at, having, at his having become fully obligated to keep the commands at 13. And he adds that there are no youthful transgressions of the quoted commandments that stand in the way between him and eternal life. But we should not understand this response as a response of belief, or of relief. In Matthew's parallel account, the man, after he confirms that he's observed the requirements of God's law, asks the question, what do I still lack? 
His response should be understood as an uneasy response, knowing that he has kept the law, but having no confidence that it is sufficient. His response asserting his obedience was likely, likely sincere, but it was inaccurate. Like Paul later, who had reason for confidence in the flesh as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This sets up the argument that keeping the law cannot and could not ever save. Outwardly, he may have been keeping the commandments, but inwardly at least, he recognized he lacked something. At his insistence that he has kept the law, Jesus springs it on him. You lack one thing. Before he does, though, he looks intensely in the face of the young man with love. Unlike all the prior encounters in Mark with the rulers of the synagogue, this is an honest seeker, one who truly wants to learn. Maybe Jesus loved him because he knew that the man was, an honest, was honest when he said that he's kept the law. Maybe Jesus' response was to his earnest distress. Maybe there's a tinge of pity as Jesus knows that he's about to say something to which the man would not respond well. Maybe all of it. It is good that he's kept the law, but he is lacking. In his love for the man, he gave him the solution to the problem, the roadmap that would lead to eternal life, the balm that would soothe his troubled soul. Jesus points out that he must give away his wealth to the poor. Love your neighbor as yourself, as the Levitical law states. But if he had truly loved his neighbors as himself, he would likely have already been using his wealth differently. He believes he could do it on his own, that there was anything he could do. I have kept these, he says. Jesus tells him that he must rid himself of all his earthly wealth and station and give it away to those who have less, who have nothing, the insignificant. Then follow Jesus. Here's the implication of the man's opening address to Jesus. If you call me good, then you must follow me as God. You will be rewarded in heaven with great riches. He tells the man to first empty himself of everything. He does not call these things evil, but his possessions are giving rise to his belief that he can purchase eternal life, that there's something that he could do. Or that with riches such as these, surely Jesus would want me. Somehow making himself more attractive. Jesus corrects him by his command to sell everything and then come follow him. And there's an urgency. Go, sell it all. Come to this place. Get rid of it all. Come back to this place and follow me. Now, Jesus is not endorsing a works-based salvation here. He does not say that giving away the goods will earn him favor with God, a la redemptive almsgiving. Rather, he is telling the man to trust completely in him. Give away all your security. Follow me. Trust me. And trust completely in me was exactly what he was telling him. For certainly without, for certainly without complete confidence in and self-surrender to the one who was issuing the order, the rich young ruler could not be expected to sell all he had and give the proceeds to the poor. 
This was the test. If he sustains it, he will have treasure in heaven. Sell all that you have emphasizes the totality of Jesus' command. Not a lot of it, not even most of it. Sell all of it. And you will have treasure in heaven. The command is great, but the motive for obedience outweighs the comprehensiveness of the command. Charity for the sake of charity matters little. Charity that's the cost of discipleship matters much. This flew in the face of the teachings of the day of which the man was surely aware. In fact, the rabbis taught that you shouldn't give all your possessions to the temple because that would be too big a loss for your estate. To that, Jesus says, hogwash, give it all away. The young man was disheartened. Crestfallen is another way of putting it because he had much. This is the only time in the New Testament that someone went away sorrowful after an encounter with Jesus. Overjoyed, angry, yes, but not sorrowful until now. We don't know specifically if it was that he was attached to material things, if it was pride, if it was clinging to his comforts. The emphasis isn't on his sadness. Rather, it would have that he would have been required to surrender much. It should be noted in his response, he didn't repent despite being saddened. He departed. There's a certain aspect to the man being stunned. He was saddened because this was not what he expected and he could not comply with what Jesus said. Rather than give up his wealth, he gave up Jesus. At this point in the text, in verse 23, there's a transition. If what Jesus had just said to the man is more connected to what was taught in 13 through 16, then the section we move into in 23 through 27 carries it forward to what's coming up next. Jesus moves from addressing the young man to a time of deeper teaching with his disciples. He then makes the proclamation how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. He's not asking a question. Rather, he's making an emphatic statement. In some way, wealth and material possessions function as a barrier to entering the kingdom of God. He does not say that the wealthy will hear that the wealthy will not enter the kingdom. Rather, he declares that they will have a hard time. Certainly a harder time than the not wealthy. If humility is necessary to enter the kingdom, as we learned in 13 through 16, then those who have much will not easily practice true humility. Wealth, rather than an advantage as in the world, serves as a disadvantage in the kingdom. Here Jesus is looking to impress upon the disciples two truths. The significance of the man's sorrowful departure and the difficulty of entering the kingdom of God. Difficult indeed, impossible even as we will see. Attaining eternal life is impossible with man. The disciples are amazed at his words. In the face of their astonishment, Jesus repeats himself. 
he declares that it is generally difficult to enter the kingdom, not just for the rich, but for all. This is maybe the first hint that we get that maybe most will not enter the kingdom. At least, not all will enter the kingdom of God. Jesus calls the disciples children. Now, we may be tempted to overlook this word children, but there's something significant here. This is not the word for children that has been used at any point in this section of Mark. Previously, the word that's been used is the Greek word pateon, referring more to little ones or, the age, or youth or insignificance. But here, the word is technon, meaning there's a family relationship. The emphasis is more on the children, not just as little ones or insignificant, but that you are my heirs and I am caring for you. It implies a familial relationship. Ones who will share in the inheritance. The disciples are not insignificant. They are his heirs. And Jesus is taking on the role of a father teaching his children. The disciples' confusion here, though, is understandable. Culturally, at this time, wealth was considered a sign of favor from God. Israel had received the promise that it would receive an abundance of blessing if it hearkened unto the Lord in Deuteronomy. And riches and honor flow from God as we're reminded in 1 Chronicles. Job tells us, the wicked shall not be rich. But Jesus sharpens his message. What is true for the rich is hard for all. It is hard to enter heaven. How hard is it? Jesus then makes the comparison that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. This statement is absurd on its face. Of course this hyperbole should cause us to respond with, that's impossible, and rightfully so. The camel was the largest animal in Judea, and the eye of a needle was one of the smallest openings. This simply could not happen. What Jesus did not say explicitly in 23, he appears to quite explicitly say here, it is difficult How difficult is it? Impossible. Their response moves from amazement to exceeding astonishment, as if they could not be more mind-blown. They're utterly confounded. The words that that convey exceeding astonishment when it appears in the New Testament, it's always used in response to kingdom teachings that are completely at odds with how the world understands things. In the Greek Old Testament, this phrase is used only five times, and every time that it's used, it is the response of the pagans when God's people undergo martyrdom. It is a response that is demonstrated as complete confoundment at something so counterintuitive as to turn the order completely on its head. Everything you know is wrong. 
If this is the way of things, the disciples ask, then who can be saved? In the face of this teaching, how can anyone enter the kingdom? Why would this be the response? They were poor. Jesus seems to only be talking about the rich. Unless it's not the rich per se, but rather those who trust in material wealth and possession. Those who think they have things. When we talk about eternal life, the Old Testament and the intertestamental literature were replete with references to eternal life. Daniel states that many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life. In the intertestamental story of the martyrdom of the second brothers, the, second, the seven brothers, the second brothers who's facing death makes the statement, you dismiss us from this present life, but the king of this universe will raise us to an everlasting life. There was an expectation that the righteous would be raised to eternal life. The disciples' confusion might be understandable. They would, have been con- they would have been familiar with the teachings. Now Jesus is telling them that eternal life is impossible with man. If righteousness is keeping the law, shouldn't keeping the law result in eternal life? Now you're saying it's impossible. Were the prophets lying? Another aspect of this is the teaching of the day of redemptive almsgiving. Giving. This was the idea that the giving of alms could curry favor with God. Beggars of the day would often repeat the phrase, Sekun imi, acquire merit through me. They didn't say, give me your money. They said, acquire merit through me. Consequently, the rich were thought to have a privileged position because of their wealth. The more wealth they accumulated, the more they could give it away and the more favor they could curry with God. It was considered a godly way to exercise the love of money. If, on the other hand, wealth does nothing to curry favor with God, then the not wealthy have no hope. Jesus does not tell the rich man to go give his riches to the poor and accumulate more to give away. He tells the man, go give it all away and abandon the pursuit of wealth altogether. It will do you no good. The thought that anyone should attain eternal life in the face of this teaching should be mind-blowing. Jesus looks at the disciples in the same way that he looked at the rich man, intently. Jesus essentially confirms the disciples' understanding. If eternal life were left up to man, then with man it's impossible. But it isn't up to man. It's up to God. And with God, all things are possible. The camel can be threaded through the needle. Without God's intervention, salvation is impossible. Entering the kingdom, inheriting eternal life, finding salvation, these things are beyond human capabilities for rich and poor alike. At this point, Jesus offers his reassurance. He reiterates that with men, this is impossible reaffirming that at every point, beginning, middle, and end, man is incapable, but Jesus offers this reassurance, with God, all things are possible. Eternal life is not a lie. The prophets weren't wrong. Eternal life 
comes from God, not man. Man's extremity is God's opportunity. Jesus has already begun to reveal how this salvation is brought about in chapters 8 and 9, but he will continue to do so with increasing clarity as the text moves forward. Attaining eternal life is possible with God. Clearly, Peter is still distressed at this point, meditating on Jesus' command to the rich man. Peter then says, We have left everything and followed you. Unlike many other passages in Mark, this text does not highlight any inappropriate pride on the part of the disciples. Jesus does not rebuke Peter here. Rather, Jesus affirms that Peter and the disciples represent the antithesis of the young man. See, we aren't like the rich man. We gave up everything. We did what you commanded the rich man to do. We gave it all up for you. What is there for us? What We did what you commanded, but now you're saying it's impossible for a rich man, the one who has all the advantage. This is hopeless. What is there for us? Jesus' response to Peter is further assurance. There is a difference between Mark's and Matthew's accounts here. Not an inconsistency, though. Mark's reassurance seems to be general to all who have given up everything to follow Jesus. Matthew seems to limit it to just the disciples, or at least he's suggesting that there's some special reward for the disciples beyond the general reward. Jesus declares a solemn oath. Amen lego hymen. Truly, I say to you. The divine declaration. Jesus places equal emphasis and equivalence on himself and the gospel. Those who give up everything for Jesus and the sake of the gospel will receive blessings in this life. But with troubles, persecution will come. But the reward in the age to come is eternal life. There's no reward for anything less than total sacrifice. Brothers or sisters or homes or fathers or mothers or children or lands. Following Jesus in faith provides no protection against suffering. But the reward is eternal life. The rich man sought this but walked away from it when faced with the sacrifice required. Jesus does not deny great rewards those who follow him, but it will be paired with great suffering. Suffering will be integral to the mission of the disciples, and only in the kingdom to come will they be free of suffering. A note on the text at this point, when Jesus talks about the sacrifices, he talks about one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands. But when he talks about receiving the blessings, they're conjunctive. Rather than or, receiving houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. But no father. God is our father. The greatest reward in the age to come to those who have sacrificed all is eternal life. The rewards are so much more than the sacrifices. 
lest one is tempted to start sacrificing for the sake of reward and recognition in this life, Jesus' reassurance to Peter and the disciples in 29 and 30 comes with a warning in 31 to those seeking reward. Essentially, he's saying, Peter, your question is right and proper. Nevertheless, since it's easy to fall into the error of expecting a reward based on supposed merit, I must warn you so that you may not be caught unawares. The first will be last, and the last will be first. We've seen similar reversals before. In 835, we read that whoever would save his life would lose it, and whoever would lose his life for Jesus' sake will gain it. In 935, we read that anyone who would be first, he must be last and servant of all. And in, in the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel, we read that the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This, is not a, this reversal is not a new concept. He said these things before. This suggests that the lowliest and inconspicuous will be recognized in the kingdom. This serves as a warning to the disciples. In your sacrifice, do not desire to be first. Do not try to be conspicuous. For, that it's, for this itself is sin. You would have received your reward here and will not receive it in heaven. Rather, set Jesus as your object and your aim and unwavering service to him as Lord as your sole desire. And you will inherit eternal life. But with man, this is impossible. Only through God and the transformative power of his Holy Spirit poured out on those who believe in his Son can anyone hope to receive eternal life. Only through God does seeking the impossible become something worth doing. Let us pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the difficult text today that we, we have to give it all up. We have to sacrifice. That following you requires self-sacrifice. For us who, are, who live comfortably, this is not an easy thing to do. We get used to our comforts. But Father, I pray that that we would give it all up for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen.